Welcome to Reframe the Game. My name is Kent Games. I'm an athletic trainer, educator, and lover of breakthroughs. In this perspective shifting podcast, we bring you the mindset, the motivation, and the methods to help you develop as a conscious healthcare provider. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's dive in. CBD has become increasingly popular for the treatment of pain, anxiety, focus, sleep, and more. We've partnered with Sweat CBD, who delivers 100% natural, full-spectrum CBD oil, gummies, and lotions. Head to sweatcbd.com and use code ADVANTAGE, A-T-V-A-N-T-A-G-E, for 10% off at checkout. Welcome back to Reframe the Game. I'm very excited about this episode because it's personal for me, and it's one of the most meaningful shifts I have made in my own professional career. This episode is all about reframing our relationship with our profession. I think that this will be a topic that resonates with many of you because I know how much each of us are invested in our professional lives, in our careers, and in the profession of athletic training. So I thought today would be fun to start with something a little different. So let's start today with a quick game. And if you're listening to this episode right now with headphones on, but you're in a space with other athletic trainers, go ahead and take the headphones off and play this game with all of your other athletic trainers that are in the room with you and play it through the speakers. The more the merrier, right? Okay, here we go. You ready for the game? Put five fingers up. Put a finger down if you've ever been told, required, or felt it was an expectation not to take a sick day during a busy part of your year. Put a finger down if you've ever been told or have gotten the feeling that athletic trainers working in professional sports are of higher quality or somehow better than those working in other settings. Number three. Put a finger down if you or someone you know is an athletic trainer and they've missed a significant life event like a wedding or a graduation or a birthday party or a family reunion or a funeral because of work. Put a finger down if you've ever been told, thought, or believed that the NATA is the profession that you need to get involved in. And finally, Put a finger down if you've ever been told or have been asked to do something that you felt was unreasonable and have felt that if you didn't do those things, you would be shamed, you would be belittled, or you would be seen as less competent by those who asked you that. How many fingers do you still have up? For me, I have zero. And my experience tells me that most of you will have less than two fingers still up after playing that game. And my perspective is that this is a challenge for which we have to address because it's shaping our short-term and our long-term relationships with ourselves as humans and our relationship with the profession of athletic training. Now, the purpose of this game, besides being a little fun thing to do to start the episode, was really to highlight some of the widespread beliefs about athletic training that are held by athletic trainers and really set the stage to open up a conversation about the need to reframe 
these beliefs and really reframe how we approach our profession of athletic training. And we really question and start to uncover some of these things that we've been told, you know, maybe even as students or as early career athletic trainers, or we felt like we've had to learn as we've matured in the profession. Again, the purpose of this podcast is, well, really the purpose of this episode is to reframe our beliefs about our profession. And so as athletic trainers, we often overinvest in our persona, that is our thoughts, our beliefs, and our behaviors as an athletic trainer, while we underinvest in the truth that having a career as an athletic trainer is only a small sliver of who we are as a whole human. And I believe that athletic trainers are humans first. But at times throughout our careers, we build our value in the identity of being a good athletic trainer, and we place the value of our own identity as a human in being a quote-unquote good athletic trainer, whatever that means, whatever that looks like. And doing good work as an athletic trainer is important I think it's absolutely critical if we want to advance in our career to do good work and to do important work, but it doesn't require us to be an athletic trainer first and a human second. And when I say human, what I mean is, you know, it could be an infinite number of possibilities, right? It could be any of the other roles we have as humans. Maybe it's a mother, maybe it's a father, maybe it's a son, a daughter, a partner, a business owner, an artist, a friend. I could go on and on about all of these roles that we have as a human, or we could have as a human. A prevailing theme that I see in athletic training is that in order to be a quote-unquote good athletic trainer, the athletic trainer has to come first, without exception, right? I mean, has anyone else experienced that before? Where, you know, either in conversations or just the way people behave, whether it's healthcare administrators, whether they're school administrators, whether they're other athletic trainers, whether they're physicians, maybe coaches and student athletes or athletic directors, whoever you work with on a day-to-day basis, it's like you're an athletic trainer first, and that's what you are. Everything else in your world as a human comes second, and there are no exceptions to that. And sometimes, you know, when there is an exception, it causes so much anxiety and distress within us that we're unable to fully embrace being where we are at, being in the present, when we're not an athletic trainer, right? Because we always feel like there's more work to be done. We may be like, okay, well, we're not going to do treatments today. And then we constantly have our phone on us, and people are texting us, and we're always available, and we're thinking, oh, well, maybe I should have worked today. Maybe I should have opened the facility because it's what we need to do. Or maybe you're out on a weekend with your family or you're at a wedding. You've said, I'm going to take this time off. And then the whole time, you're not actually at the wedding. You're not actually with those people you said you wanted to spend time with. You're in your phone. You're constantly worrying about and responding to issues that are not where you're at. And so that really doesn't count as a break either. So, you know, if you get that exception of like, you cannot be here for work, or I'm going to choose not to be here for this work this week, but you can always get a hold of me. I remember when I was working in the college and university setting, we had work-issued cell phones, and we were expected to respond timely to requests from student-athletes whenever they wanted to reach us. And we were expected to give our work cell phone numbers to the student-athletes and to the coaches. There was one time, it was 2 o'clock in the morning, 
And I get a text message from a student athlete, and they said, Kent, I just ate some chicken that was a month expired. And, you know, since I was expected to have my cell phone on, I didn't silence my cell phone at night. I had it on so I could hear the text message vibrations or the text message pings at any time of the day or the night. I didn't realize it at the time. I answered the question and said, well, if you already ate, it's a little too late now for you to be telling me. And I guess we'll just have to see if you get any sort of gastrointestinal issues in the next couple hours. And, you know, I was a little annoyed. That's kind of just life stuff. Like, why are you texting me about you eating bad chicken at 2 a.m.? You know, read the package and let them know that you shouldn't eat chicken that's expired over a month. (laughs) And, you know, as I reflect on that, I think about how ridiculous that was. I reflect on how ridiculous of an expectation that was for us, even if it's a work-issued cell phone. And I was very grateful for the opportunity to have a work-issued cell phone and, you know, to have a job and to gain this experience. But I don't know if it was ever said, like if it was ever, like you must answer your phone or you must respond to text messages all the time, but it was certainly an unsaid or an unseen or a hidden expectation of the position. And I reflect on that today and I just think about how ridiculous that is. Like, do we really need to do that? Because if there is an emergency after hours, I don't care how great we are. If there's an emergency, there's nothing we are going to be able to do. If there's an emergency, maybe the individual should call 911. If it's truly an emergency, if it's not, perhaps it can wait for the next business day or the next morning when there's when there's open clinic. And I think all of these things, you know, all of these expectations, it results in this subtle and unconscious shift, right, to strengthen our identity as an athletic trainer. But it neglects our other gifts, our other talents, our other abilities and quite frankly, our well-being. I think that's one of the things that we pride ourselves on as athletic trainers, like being available, being there for the student-athletes, being there for the patients when they first get injured and we, we work with them every day to get them back. We sacrifice everything for their sacrifice. There's been some marketing material, like athletic trainers never rest. There's this idea that athletic trainers have to be the first ones in and the last ones out on sports teams and stuff like that. I get it, right? I get the need to add value and to be present, but I often question the consequences that has for us as humans because unconsciously and subtly shifts and creates expectations about what a quality athletic trainer is. A quality athletic trainer is an athletic trainer that never rests. That's total BS, in my opinion. From my perspective, if you're an athletic trainer that never rests, Good for you. But in the long run, thinking 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, if you go 50 years without resting, you're not going to be as effective. You're going to be making more mistakes. You're not going to be showing up as the best you every patient every single time. Where if we can reframe this and say, I can add massive value to an organization and I don't have to sell myself to the organization, whether it's a healthcare organization or a sports team or a university or a school or a, you know, whatever, whatever organization is, you don't have to sell yourself and your well-being. That's not the price to be a quality athletic trainer. That's not the price to be the best athletic trainer that you can be. Because one day, our current reality, that is like working as an athletic trainer, will no longer serve us. One day in our lives, 
we will no longer be an athletic trainer. Whether we burn out, whether we consciously choose to leave the profession, whether we pursue a different passion or a different purpose, or we, we adjust our purpose to our purpose and our passion are unaligned. So we, we chart a different course in healthcare, or we have a side hustle and that side hustle turns into our main hustle, or we retire. At some point in our lives, we are not going to be an athletic trainer because it's not going to serve us. And then the question is, what are we going to do to cultivate ourselves then? I think we have to think about this long range. We have to step back and look at the consequences of our actions today on how it affects our well-being 10, 15, 30 years down the road. I think we're having this conversation from like an osteoarthritis, like a post-traumatic osteoarthritis uh, conversation and perspective, like if a student athlete has an ACL reconstruction, how many years until are they going to need a, a joint replacement or, or something like that? Or how long does it take for them to develop post-traumatic osteoarthritis due to some of the changes that the biomechanical changes which occur after the injury and after the repair? But we're not having the same conversation. We're not translating that conversation to our own professional well-being and our own professional vitality and our own professional sustainability. Like, what are the consequences to working 80 hours a week being available all the time in your mid-20s and 30s, 10 years down the road? I don't know. If we look at the data, right, we look at at least membership data with the national organization, the NATA, we see people leave the membership organization between years 6 and 10, And generally, we also see people leave the profession at those points. We see some people shift into different settings, et cetera, but that's still relatively short. That's still only the first 10 years of your career. How does this affect you for the athletic trainers, you know, who graduated in the last 10 years and they're still athletic trainers? What are going to be the consequences of our actions 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 40 years from now when we're thinking about retirement? That's what keeps me up at night when I think about myself in the larger profession, when I think about me being a piece of the profession, you know, me being the profession. I worry about that, not only for myself, but for our collective well-being. And are we going to have athletic trainers 50 years from now? I don't know. I certainly hope so. I love athletic training, and I think it adds massive value for those people who use our services. And I think we can also add massive value without selling ourselves. I think we can do that by being a human first and being a human who also is an athletic trainer and has chosen athletic training as a career. So I think another component that plays into this conversation is how we often categorize our professional membership organizations as the profession. But I think the reality is each one of us are the profession and also each one of us are part of the whole. And what I mean by that is I think out of simplicity or explanation or simply opportunity, at least in my early career as an athletic trainer and as an athletic training student, you know, the idea that be engaged in the profession. Okay, what does that look like? That looks like getting involved in the NATA, getting involved at the district level, getting involved at the state level. That's what, quote unquote, the profession is. 
And you know, that stuck with me for a long time. And it's still something that I have internal conversations with myself and external conversation with my colleagues about who owns the profession. You know, what is the profession? Is the profession the professional membership organizations or is the profession the athletic trainers? And I think it's both. I think there's a kind of a duality there. I do not believe that the professional membership organizations are the profession. I'm a proud NATA member, and I'm a proud District 4 member, and a proud Indiana IATA member. But I do not believe that those organizations are the profession. Athletic training would exist without them. If they went away, the profession would still be around. I was doing some research for this, and it blew my mind that there's over 70 professional organizations in athletic training. Over 70. And so the profession is not the national or the district or the state professional membership organizations. They serve a role in advocating for the profession, but they are not the profession. And so, you know, I think sometimes that confusion creates some distancing from like we're able to step back and say, well, the NATA isn't me and I'm not the NATA, but the NATA is the profession. And so you're asking yourself, you feel disenfranchised because you may not be aligned with what the NATA's mission is. And that's totally okay. You don't need to feel disenfranchised from the profession of athletic training if you feel disenfranchised from some of the professional membership organizations of athletic training. You can invest and be engaged and be a part of the profession of athletic training without ever serving the mission of the NATA or without ever serving the mission of a district or state organization. There are other organizations to get involved in, and you don't have to do it in any organization at all because every single one of us are the profession. And then us collectively and our collective actions not the collective actions of the professional membership organizations, but the collective actions of individual athletic trainers across the world is what creates the profession of athletic training. And when we separate ourselves from the profession, and when we and when I try to separate myself from the profession, I'm reminded of this quote, part of a poem by Rumi, where he writes, You are not a drop in the ocean. You are an entire ocean in a drop. And to translate that into athletic training, we are not a singular athletic trainer in the profession. We are the entire profession in an athletic trainer. And I think that's really powerful if you sit back and reflect on that for a moment. So I'm going to read both of those again. The quote from the poem is, you are not a drop in the ocean. You are the entire ocean in a drop. And translated into athletic training, it's, you are not a singular athletic trainer in the profession. You are the entire profession in an athletic trainer. I get goosebumps reading that again and feeling that. I feel that in my soul, in my heart, in my gut, because it's absolutely true. Every single one of us are the embodiment of athletic training because the profession is created and the profession is maintained by professionals. And as athletic trainers, we are professionals. And so every single one of us are the entire profession, whether we want to be or not. 
And another quote that comes to mind is one from the philosopher of John Coolidge. And he says, I am not who I think I am. I am not who you think I am. I am who I think you think I am. Let me read that again. I am not who I think I am. I am not who you think I am. I am who I think you think I am. Let that blow your mind for a second. Essentially, what he's alluding to is that our identity is based on our interpretation who someone else thinks we are. Our identity as a human or as an athletic trainer is based on our own interpretation or our own judgment of who someone else thinks we are. And with that, we're constantly scanning our world for indicators in others to guide our own behavior on what's acceptable and what's unacceptable. And we build our actions around that, right? So we're scanning the world and we're saying, is this acceptable? Is this not acceptable? Do I think that if I do this behavior, it's going to you know, be acceptable? And we build our own actions around that, either by observing, by observing what other people do when we engage in a certain behavior or we have a conversation a certain way or we treat a patient in a, in a certain way or we engage with the patient in a certain way. We are constantly scanning and inputting information and we're testing and we're receiving feedback and this is all happening in real time and we're building our actions about who we are as a professional and who we are as an athletic trainer based on that feedback that we're getting, even if it's not formal feedback. It could be as subtle as a facial expression or body language or the tone in someone else's voice. We're constantly adjusting that because, again, who we are is an interpretation of what we think someone else thinks of us. And when I think about why this is important, why why this whole conversation that I've been having today or we've been having today together is important, is that this discussion about reframing our relationship with our profession is central to the bigger conversation about retention within the profession, the sustainability of the profession, not only as individuals within the profession, but as the profession together as a whole. Is athletic training a sustainable profession which will exist in 50 years? It's central to the conversation of burnout or the early indicators of burnout as well. It's central to the conversation of job satisfaction and engagement. How engaged of professionals are we? Are we showing up as a professional every single day? Because we are the entire profession in a single athletic trainer. So are we showing up? as a professional, day in and day out, when it's hard, when it's easy not to be a professional, when no one's looking, when we're tired, when we don't feel like doing it anymore, are we showing up? We can extend this into some of the advocacy organizations of athletic training, right? We can also measure our engagement in the professional organizations of athletic training. You know, how long we've been a member of whatever organization that is. Do we serve on any committees? Are we committed to moving forward whatever their stated mission is? And it can also be outside of professional organizations because professional organizations have a certain mission that the leadership of those professional membership organizations have determined is what their mission to fulfill is. And I think a lot of times people get involved because they say they want to change the profession 
But the reality of the situation is when you join a professional membership organization, you are committing to continuing and serving the mission that's already been established. So if you're dissatisfied with the mission of a certain professional organization, when you volunteer to serve and to engage with that, you're not volunteering to steer the mission or the direction of the, of the organization, unless you're at the very, very top. And by the time you get to the very, very top, you've been influenced and you've probably invested in the current mission as it stands. And so the idea would be to continue the status quo because that's the mission that you've invested in. If, if you didn't feel aligned with that mission, the likelihood that you are still an active member in that organization by the time you get to a national leadership position where you're in the room making the decisions on the mission and the vision of the organization, if you weren't aligned with that, you probably wouldn't be in that room. I've seen this on social media where athletic trainers say they want to change the profession. My response is, by all means, chart a new direction and then invite others to join you on that direction. If that direction resonates with others and you're able to effectively rally and create community around this direction, others will follow. Others will join your cause. But you don't need to join, you don't need to get quote-unquote involved in any professional organization if you want to change the profession. Because you're not committing to changing the profession by getting involved in a professional membership organization. By getting involved in a professional membership organization, you are committing to serve the vision and the mission of that professional membership organization. That's not to say do not get involved. I'm involved in, you know, off the top of my head, five different professional membership organizations, and I'm engaged in them at various levels. And I'm also working to create a voice and to create an outlet for people who may not feel like any of the current options in professional membership organizations to serve or to get involved really resonate with them. So I'm also trying to provide an alternative voice to see, are there other people out there like me? I don't know. If you're listening to this episode of the podcast, you know, this is in season one. Hopefully there'll be a season two and a season three and a season four and a season five, but maybe I'm just crazy and no one else sees value in this conversation. That's okay. I, I guess. I don't think that's going to deter or change my perspective. I think it'll certainly be a form of feedback if I'm the only person or there's only two or three people who are willing to have these conversations and engage in this way and, and really work, again, to reframe the game and reframe the conversation that we're having about our profession and turn our focus away from things we've been doing for 50 years and turn our focus to the things we need to do to exist in 50 years, not only to exist, but to thrive in 50 years, then that will be an opportunity for me to gain that feedback and see how the message needs to be tweaked. I feel like that's my just cause right now. Advantage is the premier provider of non-traditional work, advocacy, and resources while pushing the boundaries of athletic training. Follow them on social media at The Advantage and join their email list for an even deeper dive into all things non-traditional and access to even more boundary-pushing content. We've partnered with OnlineTherapy.com, that's online-therapy.com, 
a complete counseling toolbox where you get the support and tools you need to be happier, and it's all based on cognitive behavioral therapy. Head over to opportune.at slash online therapy. That's opportune.at slash online therapy to get started for free and enjoy 20% off of your first month of therapy. So switching gears, kind of following up on this about why we need this, why we need this conversation about reframing our relationship, because we're not talking about it. We are not talking about the intimate relationship between us as humans and our profession and our physical health, our mental health, our spiritual health, our emotional health. We're not talking about those things in the context of being a human being. We simply are not. We may talk a little bit of it in the context of being an athletic trainer, but we're not talking about how these things impact us as humans outside of our professional lives. In my experiences, you know, on social media and at national membership organization, national meetings and state meetings and district meetings, and just through connections, I know that some of these conversations are happening informally and sporadically. And I believe the first step in this is to raise awareness. We need to raise awareness of the conversation. We need to lift up the conversation. And if you're listening to this and this resonates with you, have a conversation with a colleague. Reach out to me. Let's have a conversation about this because we have to raise the awareness. We have to bring this into view and we have to know how many people feel similarly or at least parts of the message resonate with them in order for us to bring this to light and in order for us to create a movement around these conversations. You know, like we do look for symptoms of burnout and retention in the profession. Like we do. We have research on that. That's a topic of conversation. And we do see athletic trainers struggle with this. We know athletic trainers struggle with the symptoms and the indicators of burnout. We have a challenge retaining athletic trainers. We've been questioning if athletic training is sustainable, but we've not offered very many solutions to what those are. I don't know what the solution is. Do we need to have a radical solution or is it an incremental solution? Is it simply an internal reframing of how we approach the profession of athletic training day in and day out and how we approach our career as an athletic trainer and we view ourselves as humans first? I don't know. But introducing the topics like reframing our relationship does create an opportunity for solution-based thinking. And we have to be solution-focused in order to take the next step in our journey as professionals, in our journey as a profession. And again, it ties back into retention and burnout and sustainability of the individual athletic trainer as well as the entire profession and the career as an athletic trainer. And unless we have these conversations, we're walking in the dark. We're walking blindly. With that in mind, why I want to have this conversation with you today and why I want to inspire you to have conversations with your colleagues, why I want to inspire you to reach out and connect if this resonates with you or if it creates more questions for you, that is absolutely fantastic. If you're skeptical of the conversation that we're having today, that's great too. If it really resonates with you and you're like, absolutely, we need to be doing this, fantastic. Let's keep the conversation going. 
And this is all a lead up to really the heart of the matter. And that is athletic training is a career. Athletic training is not a way of being. It's a job title. Athletic trainer is a job title. It's not a person. I know this may be uncomfortable to hear. It was, and at moments, it's still very uncomfortable for me to sit in this space where I dissociate myself and I say, I'm a human who is an athletic trainer. I am a person who has chosen the career as an athletic trainer or an athletic training educator because so much of my identity in the past, particularly when I was like, you know, in college as an athletic training student was tied up in this idea of I'm an athletic trainer, right? Like I am an athletic trainer. I'm an athletic trainer. I'm an athletic trainer. And that's what I introduce myself as first. I don't introduce myself as, as a human first or as a father first. I don't, I don't do that. I introduce myself as an athletic trainer first. That's a fascinating concept that we as athletic trainers identify ourselves by our career more often than we identify the other things that are in our life. We have to remember that we are all humans first, and we will all be humans in the end. And we have to learn to celebrate the human we are right now. Like we were a human when we were brought into this world. When we were birthed, we were a human. And we are a human for a little while. And then at some point in our adolescence slash early 20s, society told us we needed to have a career. And we so happened to find athletic training. And then once we were in athletic training, we adopted this strong sense of identity as an athletic trainer. And we'll be an athletic trainer for however long our career in athletic training lasts. But when that's all over, we will be a human again. So why are we going to miss out on the largest chunk of our life and forget that we're humans today? We can't go back to when we were children and when we were birthed and look at those times. And we can't look forward to the future when we retire or we're no longer an athletic trainer and say, that's when I'm going to enjoy my life. Again, the uncomfortable truth is that may not ever come. I hate to say it, but some of us will not make it to our retirement. There's no nice way to say it, but we have to shift our mindset and celebrate the present and celebrate ourselves as a human right now. Look to cultivate ourselves as a human right now. Sure, we can cultivate ourselves as a professional, as an athletic trainer, but if we become better humans, I'm willing to bet that we become better athletic trainers as well. This reminds me of another part of this, which is when every single one of us think of athletic training, what is an athletic trainer? I don't need the technical definition. I want you to create a, an, a mental formation of what an athletic trainer is. We all have a set and we all create a set of expectations of what a good athletic trainer is or what a bad athletic trainer is, and we, we create examples for ourselves. Whether or not we ever tell anyone these are characteristics of a good athletic trainer, these are characteristics of a bad athletic trainer, that's inconsequential. But the simple truth is that we do that. And that's all well and good. Probably every human creates mental formations. They, they create expectations for any host of, of scenarios. But I think the primary way athletic trainers specifically. So that's we talk about humans and we talk about humans as athletic trainers and maybe this is a human condition 
where we create expectations and mental formations. But if we zoom in on athletic training specifically, the primary way athletic trainers learn about our expectations about what an athletic trainer is or what a good athletic trainer is or a bad athletic trainer is, is from our preceptors, from our mentors, from our teachers, and from our peers, right? Unfortunately, very few of us as athletic trainers today generated our ideas of what an athletic trainer could be when we were a child. So we lost this opportunity to wonder and to experience athletic training with curiosity. I remember growing up and pretend playing to be a vet or pretend playing to be a doctor or pretend playing to be a professional football player or pretend playing an army man, right? Like I remember doing those things, right? We had those professions and those careers had the benefit of exploring with childlike wonder and curiosity. And I'm sure the things that I thought of that a doctor or a physician could do were not at all possible, right? Like physicians have great skill and and medicine and science are are fantastic, but we can't just magically, you know, wave our pretend magic wand and, and fix something. That's not how it works. But as a child, it was possible. For some of those professions, we get to approach those with wonder. And in athletic training, it's just unfortunate that because of where we are in our life cycle as a profession, we're past our wonder years, if you will, like our childlike curiosity, the innocence. We're past our innocence. Most of us are when we learn, when we really learn about athletic training. And we really learn what an athletic trainer is about. And we learn from preceptors, mentors, teachers, and peers. So we start this formation of our idea of what an athletic trainer is from people who we are either told we should respect or people who have garnered our respect. And it becomes very black and white. Like, this is what a good athletic trainer is. This is what a bad athletic trainer is. This is what athletic trainers do. Athletic trainers work long hours. Athletic trainers don't get paid a lot of money. Athletic trainers must work nights and weekends. Athletic trainers are the first ones in and the last ones out. Athletic trainers never rest. Whatever that is, you can't be a mother and an athletic trainer. You can't be a parent and an athletic trainer. All of these limiting beliefs and these beliefs about what our profession is are told to us when we're a young adult. And I believe that many of us, when we were told these things, you know, had that young adult arrogance in saying, well, that's not going to happen to me. Like, I'm going to be the change. I'm going to, I'm going to fight the system and that's going to be different for me. Or at least we want to see the possibility in that. But as we get into the profession, we are brutally made aware that maybe our preceptors, our mentors, and our teachers were telling us these things and maybe overemphasizing the negative connotations or the limiting parts of these beliefs because it can be rough. A concrete example of how our mentors and our preceptors and our teachers influence our vision of the profession is when we were students, everyone would say, at least for me, get involved in the profession. Okay, well, what does that mean? I don't know what the profession is. And then what was the immediate resource which was given to us? The resources were at the professional membership organization level. So getting involved with a profession equaled getting involved in the professional membership organizations. So now early on, as a young student or an athletic training student, 
we've started to make these connections from people we respect or people we've been told to respect that involvement in the profession equals involvement in the professional membership organizations. And then 10 years later, when we may feel disenfranchised, we're left questioning, well, how is the profession serving me? I really don't resonate with the message of this certain professional membership organization. And so how can I make a difference? I've tried to get involved and I just can't because the mission is different than what I view the vision of athletic training being. Then we feel isolated and disenfranchised. But that was an honest attempt from those people who raised us, if you will, in athletic training to help us find community. And unfortunately, it wasn't the whole picture. And it helped us form this construct that the profession was a thing that was external to us rather than us, right? It formed this idea or this mental formation that the profession was this ethereal thing. It was this this group, this organized mass of people rather than each and every one of us as being the profession. And when we do view the profession as external to us, we can remove responsibility, we can remove ownership, and we can remove control and direction without any consequence. If we tie the profession to the professional membership organization, we can simply say, well, I'm not a member of XYZ, so it doesn't matter. And we're still dissatisfied, we are still not moving forward, and we feel even more isolated because we haven't found a pathway to be engaged in the profession because we have this mental construct that the profession is a professional membership organization. And we can start to reframe this by using words. We can reframe the conversation by changing the way we speak. So instead of saying, I'm an athletic trainer, right? You can say, hi, my name is Kent. And I work as an athletic trainer. You can say, hi, my name is Kent. And in my current career, I'm an athletic trainer. So you're putting yourself first, not the profession. It sounds simple and it sounds awkward and it sounds super simple. And it is super simple. It's a super simple step to take. Just put yourself first and put the profession second. That's all you have to do. Or maybe you can put the profession third. Hi, my name's Kent. I'm a father and an athletic trainer. However you want to frame it, you can put athletic training second, third, fourth, fifth, eighth. You don't even have to put it on the list when you're introducing yourself. You can simply say, hi, my name's Kent, and then start the conversation from there. It goes beyond how we frame ourselves in our human relationship with our job, and it also goes into how we think and feel about our actions around the role of an athletic trainer. And what I mean by this is, you know, some of those limiting beliefs about taking a day off and how that's bad or missing a game day is somehow inexcusable or taking time off in the season to take a vacation is unheard of and it's bad. Like you're somehow less than if you decide you're going to take a family vacation in the middle of football season. If that's when you decide to take a vacation, then that's when you decide to take a vacation. That doesn't mean you're good or bad. Taking a day or missing a day of work is neither good nor bad. If you're taking a day off, it's simply what's needed. You're taking a day off. Or it's it's not even what's needed. It's maybe what you want. You don't have to have a reason to take a day off. 
especially if your contract allows you to take days off. If you have paid time off days and you can take them whenever. You don't have to have a reason to take a day off, right? You don't need to do it. You could just simply want to do it. Or this idea of missing a competition for a wedding or a funeral or a birthday or a graduation of your sibling, that's not good or bad. It simply is. It doesn't make you more of an athletic trainer if you sacrifice a family event to work. And it doesn't make you less of an athletic trainer if you go to your family event or you go to a life event and you miss a competition. It simply is what it is. Even if we do prioritize our family, our friends, our big events in our life, our life events, even if we work on building our life resume, I'm really guilty of this. We do it with so much guilt and shame and, a, and strong attachment, and it totally defeats the purpose of choosing something other than athletic training, right? It defeats the purpose of choosing something else other than work. If you're going to a wedding and the entire time you're at the wedding, you're on your phone and you're, you're constantly checking messages or you're checking to see what the score of the game is, it's totally fine to be involved if you work at a school setting whether that's college, university, or, or you know, even professional sports or secondary school. If you work in that setting, it's totally cool to be involved and know the outcome of the event, but you don't need to check it obsessively if you've committed to being present with your family or your friends. And we certainly don't need to be answering questions with the patients that we're working with when we're at those events. I'm sure there's another athletic trainer there to cover or, or to provide care to those patients or student athletes. And if not, then that's on the organization. And that seems cold and that seems heartless, but we have to look at this a little differently or we're going to be seeing the consequences of our actions 10 to 15 or 20 years from now. And we have to detach ourselves from our professional setting. I love this quote from Jay Shetty. And he says, detachment is not owning nothing. It's that nothing owns you. So if you detach from your identity as an athletic trainer, it doesn't mean that you're not an athletic trainer. What it means is that athletic training doesn't own you. That's the whole purpose here. That's the whole point of the conversation is to move to this place where we are not owned by athletic training. We are not owned by our career. Just because we detach from it, it doesn't mean we can't be an excellent athletic trainer. But for many athletic trainers, myself included, Detaching ourselves from our own professional identity is definitely the first step. Before we can get to this idea of detachment is not only nothing, it's that nothing owns you, we first have to detach ourselves from our professional identity. We have to radically reframe our behavior and put it in perspective. So I want to talk about time for a second. You know, we often talk about time in the literal sense, like minutes hours, years, decades, but we rarely have a conversation about time in the practical sense. And what I mean by that is moments or visits, right? So I'll use my, myself as an example. So my parents are both in their 60s now. I think six, they both turned 61 this past year. And if we take the average United States life expectancy today, it's a tad over 78 years. And if we just say my parents are average, I have 18 years left with my parents to learn from them, to share experiences with them, to create memories with them, to reflect with them, whatever it is. I only have 18 years. 
And 18 years sounds like a pretty long time, right? Like 18 years. Okay. That's almost two decades. I've got plenty of time with them, but I don't have 18 years with my parents. I have a much shorter period of time. Maybe I have 18 summers, but I don't even have 18 summers. 18 summers is less than 18 years. I'm fortunate enough that my parents don't live terribly far away from me and I can visit them quite frequently if I choose, right? But let's say my parents did live across the country and it wasn't something that I could do every month or every two months to to visit them. And I only saw them two times a year. I saw them once in the summertime and maybe once around the holidays in the winter. So if we use that perspective, if I only see my parents two times a year, and they're going to live for 18 more years. I don't have 18 more years with them. I have 36 visits with them. And that's on average. I may have way less than 36 visits. I may be blessed and I have more than 36 visits. But I don't know what that's. I don't know how many visits I'm going to have left. But what I know is that 36 visits, which may last a weekend, or if I'm lucky, a week, you know, that's 72 to 100 days. I have 72 to 100 days with my parents left. And now let's complicate things more. If we never disconnect from our job, let's say we sacrifice one of those visits because our employer is hosting some tournament and they need our help with it. And so they ask for volunteers and we're the first to volunteer, even though we were supposed to have that week off. And we volunteer for that. Boom, that's a visit gone. That's three to five to seven days off of that 72 to 100 days I have left with my parents. And let's complicate this thing a little more. Sure, I go and I spend time with my parents, but I refuse to disconnect from my job. Now I'm physically present with my parents. I'm physically around, but I'm not present with them. I'm not where my feet are. And I choose to disconnect. My mind and my attention is elsewhere right? I'm thinking about what's going on back in the athletic training facility. I'm making sure that the other athletic trainers are covering for me appropriately. Like I'm trying to dictate to another professional exactly what to do, even though they're a professional and they know what to do. There can be some flexibility in our practice there. And essentially when we do that, even when we are physically in another location with people we care about, but we, if we are mentally checked out, we are essentially diminishing the value of that visit. So every single time we do that, we're marking off another day. And then we look back and we're counting and we're, we're down into the 50s because we've gotten a text message first thing in the morning and now we're stressed out because we're trying to get a patient scheduled for a surgery and we're trying to have a conversation with a coach and a physician and what, whatever the responsibility is. And that day is completely shot. That is one day out of 100. That is 1% of the time you have left with your parents left that you will never get back. And if that doesn't wake you up, check yourself. Check yourself really quick and do the math. Each of us are in our own spots. Maybe you're a little older. Maybe your parents are a little older. Maybe you only have one parent left. You know, maybe you're a little younger and you live closer. Are you always going to live that close? How frequently do you plan on seeing your parents? Is your partner or your kids going to complicate how many times you see your parents in the future? Because two decades just got shrunk to 75 to 100 days. And when we're having this conversation, 
I'm not naive enough to think that this is an entirely uniquely athletic training thing. This isn't unique to athletic training. It's a central human condition, especially in Western cultures where capitalism is the name of the game. But in athletic training, we're not talking about this. And we have to just start talking about it. We have to start talking about the long-term consequences of our decisions in order to reframe our relationship with our profession. Because failing to normalize these conversations only continues the cycles of unhelpful identity attachment. And so I want to leave you with an activity. And this is a pretty challenging activity. It's simple, but it's a challenge because it requires us to do a little bit of hard work. And I call this activity three priorities. So what you'll need is a calendar of your next six months. Maybe they're planned out, maybe they're not, but you need a calendar that goes at least six months in advance. I want you to take a look at the next six months from today, whenever you're listening to this episode. And I want you to think about three priority activities, life events, vacations, weddings you know you have coming up, your wedding, maybe it's a birth of a child, whatever, three things that you can identify as these are things I want to have as priorities in my life in the next six months. And they can't be related to athletic training. So you can't be like, I'm looking forward to the NATA convention coming up, or I'm looking forward to the district meeting because I love hanging out with my athletic training buddies. Three things that are not athletic training related, and they are priority activities. They are priority events in your life. I want you to find a time and put them in your calendar right now. Commit to engaging in these activities right now, that they're in your calendar. They don't come out. Plan your life first. These days are now blocked off as your three priority days, your three priority weekends, your three priority weeks, whatever the time frame is to complete these three priority activities are. Those are your priorities for the next six months. Now is where the hard work begins. This is where the challenge starts. You have to stick to your plan. I want you to take the necessary actions you have to take to follow through on your commitment to yourself and your commitment to your priorities. You're the one who said these were important, even if there is a work conflict. I want you to choose you for these three days, for these three weekends, for these three weeks. Choose you. If you're having a problem with why I have a conflict with work, a way you can reframe this is to say that your work is in conflict with your life, not your life is in conflict with your work. Life first, work second. You have committed to hold yourself to a priority activity once every eight weeks, three times in six months, averages out to be at once every eight weeks or essentially once every two months. You're telling me you can't take one day or one week or one weekend every two months for yourself to prioritize you and prioritize what you want to do. Maybe you just want to have a self-care day and go get a massage and go for a run or do whatever you want to do or just not work. You don't have to be some big event. It can be a big event, but you're prioritizing yourself for three days or three weeks or three weekends or some mix of those in six months, once every two months. You can do this. Because you are worth it. And now no one's going to hold you accountable for following through on this. I'm not going to know if you do this and you write this down and you never follow through. You're the only one who's going to know this. It is my sincere hope 
that you see that this activity can add value to your life. And I hope that you are able to choose yourself. And I hope that you're able to empower yourself and say yes to you. Say yes to your life three times in six months. Now, if you are able to choose yourself, simply repeat this process for the following six months and maybe increase the density of your priority activities. Maybe instead of three activities every six months, you do six activities every six months or four activities or 10 activities. You know, get really crazy and do 12 activities. That may be a little excessive, but you could get there. You could get to 12, 15, 20 activities in six months. Absolutely. It would require some really hard and focused effort, but you could get there. And doing this, you will gain credibility with yourself. But the process of gaining credibility requires practice. It is a practice. Gaining credibility with yourself is a practice. Empowering yourself to do hard things is a practice. And choosing yourself is a practice. You're not going to be perfect choosing yourself every time. You may physically be there, but mentally you're checked out. That's progress. Commit to yourself next time to learn and to try to do better. What were my triggers? Do I need to turn off my phone completely? Do I need to prepare better for my departure? Do I need to create a plan so I feel more comfortable, so I'm able to relax? Choosing yourself is a practice. And I hope that this activity in this episode is the start to the practice of choosing yourself and to the practice of building credibility and to the practice of prioritizing yourself. And the purpose of today's episode was to begin the conversation around who we are as humans who happen to have chosen the profession of athletic training as a career. We can no longer accept the traditional mindsets like quantity of time equals the value or the quality of the athletic trainer. Or our value as an athletic training professional is dependent on the setting that we work in. I've seen the conflict arise in myself, in colleagues and friends, when something inside of us tells us that these quote-unquote traditional mindsets aren't serving us anymore. But the best advice we've given ourselves and our peers and future athletic trainers is, well, that's just the way it is. That's just the way athletic training is. That advice doesn't cut it anymore. It doesn't work. We have to reframe the conversation and begin the hard work, the very hard work of professional introspection, reflection, elimination, and rejuvenation. MedBridge provides evidence-based courses, unlimited CEUs, a home exercise program featuring over 6,000 exercises, and much more. Use promo code THEADVANTAGE, that is T-H-E-A-T-V-A-N-T-A-G-E, to get an annual MedBridge subscription for as low as $200. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Reframe the Game. If you found value or were inspired by this episode, please share it with a colleague or a friend so we can collectively have conversations in order to grow and develop both as humans and professionals. 